Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Chancey and Wimena, and it is a pleasure to be on the show today because I have an extra special guest. Peter, please introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, I'm Peter Curry. So just like the spice by way of pronunciation. I'm currently at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I work as a physician scientist. And I direct the uh, Comprehensive Bone Marrow Failure Center here at Penn and Chalk. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Now, Dr. Curry, you are a highly accomplished person, and you've been in the game for a really, really long time. I want to ask, at what point in your journey did you see yourself not just as a clinician, but as someone who's also a clinician scientist? And, and, and just talk to us about that transition and about your your journey as well. Yeah, I think the this goes back to, I guess, a role model. My first job out of German medical school for a number of quirks in the German system that may no longer exist, but certainly applied back then. I found my first job in a very highly specialized field, pediatric stem cell transplantation. The individual who ran that program at University of Dusseldorf was an inspiration because he had managed what I didn't really understood to be possible then, which is to be a physician and to do great science that was collaborative and I think really um, uh, impactful in many ways. So I think that set me off. And uh, I think what affirmed it was that uh, somewhere during the pediatric training, I understood that the best uh, pediatrics is not necessarily um, practiced by those who have a craving for creativity, right? You want someone who has deep experience and practices what is evidence-based. But then again, that runs into the need for that suddenly I felt to do something creative and to explore. And so I guess I discovered the thrill of discovery and the beauty and fun that is in science. I love it. So mentorship was kind of part of what led you to this place, but also your own love for discovery. And it sounds like there was a little bit of maybe hesitation in that transition, because in a way, it sounds like you really enjoyed the clinical care aspect of things, but there was this tension of needing to kind of really move towards the, the science of di the discovery. 
I, I wonder if you want to speak to that. Yeah, um, I've been in this country now for 30 years. My initial motivation to come was to have balanced and thorough general pediatric training. So I had been inspired by that individual, but I wasn't sure I could do it. And so I was really looking for a path to good pediatric training. And so I think it was then being in the United States and seeing that being a physician scientist and working in, on both sides, if you will, was a reality that, you know, maybe was within reach for me. I love what you, you say because you crystallize a lot of the concerns I think that many younger physicians have where they're like, I love seeing patients. I love taking care of them. I don't want to lose my clinical, my clinical skills, but research is important as well. What advice do you give to young faculty who are trying to balance this tension between clinical care and research? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is bad news, but I, I think the most important skill in the successful transition is to be comfortable with letting go, right? Once you become a an expert in something and you really have deep knowledge, you have to appreciate that you can no longer have broad knowledge in everything. So when you are an accomplished and board certified pediatrician and then want to subspecialize, there are many aspects of pediatrics, you will have to be comfortable letting go. You you know, I trained as a stem cell transplanter uh, and hematologist uh, at the Hutch uh, and uh, Seattle Children's. And I think it was clear early on to me that I would never be, a, you know, a consummate uh, GI specialist and that I knew very little about pulmonary medicine, for example. So you have to let go of something and be comfortable with that. And I think many young trainees early on struggle with that because it is an accomplishment to practice medicine and to be a, a gatekeeper, uh, a pediatrician or an internal medicine doc who knows how to diagnose a patient and how to uh, help them create referrals. But it's entirely different to be a subspecialist because there's many things you can no longer pursue and you will not be an expert at. And that's important to understand early on and to become comfortable with. I appreciate you saying that. It's almost like a fear of missing out. And the reality is we're doing it all the time, right? When we were medical students and we chose a specialty, we actually closed the door on all the other specialties. And so in a sense, what you're talking about is doing that more and more as you're moving forward in your expertise, you are closing doors, but it, you have to be comfortable with doing that. Yeah, that's very right. Yep. I love that. I want, I want you now to just speak to some of the differences you see. You've been in, in your career and, and you've kind of, you know, done this over the last few decades. What are some differences you see now compared to when you were coming up as a clinician scientist and now as, as younger clinician scientists are coming up? <sighs> I think there's a lot of good news, actually. I, I really think that the there are many, many great opportunities. There are, I think, now more institutions that take an active role in fostering physician scientists. It's no longer limited to the major institutions, academic institutions. I think there are more careers that one can look at 
depending on how much science you want to do and what the context for that science should be. I think that the that there's really a, a golden age of science in my mind. The the tools that the I guess the uh, IT revolution and engineering have provided us have created an amazing an amazing set of resources to tap into. And I think this is already great news. So I think this is a wonderful time to become a scientist. I think the greatest risk is distraction. I think over the, what I still think is a short course of my career, uh, I think there's so many more uh, demands on especially young physician scientists in the transition. You know, everyone need, now needs to be their own PR specialist vis-a-vis -vis social media. Uh, I think that there is an increased uh, demand for how healthcare is delivered. I guess here the catchword would be the electronic medical record that we spend a lot of time with. So I think there's a lot of distraction that has nothing to do with our patient care or very little. And on the other side, the, the science is accelerating in just the pace of publications. I think that uh, can be a, a daunting set, or it may appear to be a daunting set of obstacles. But at the end of the day, the greatest science I know is my own, and that should be the same for every physician scientist. Uh, you should believe deeply that what you do is worthwhile, impactful, and it has a future. And when you do, things will fall into place and you'll be able to compartmentalize and maybe drown out some of the distractions. I love I love what you how you summarize it. It's I, I actually really love your positive outlook as well. Just that there is great opportunity. There's so many new technologies that can be incorporated into into our research programs. And and I appreciate what you speak about distraction. And 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 there is so much now in healthcare that's required of physicians and not all of them are necessarily directly beneficial to the patient. And so really it it you speak to the need for for, fo for focus, but creating structures that allow you to, as you say, drown out the noise so that you can really focus on your research. And, and I like what you say about, you know, your research is your own. You're, you're the one leading it. If you don't lead it, nobody else is going to. All the other stuff somebody else can do at some point. But if you don't lead your research, the thing that drives you, the passion you have, no one, no one else is going to move it forward. And so it's almost like there is an imperative or maybe an obligation we have, and not a bad obligation, but really to really move our work forward. And, and I, I love, I love what you shared in, in that. And I think, I think the, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think the, you're, you're hitting on a, I think key aspect and maybe one of the, the ultimate struggles in being a physician scientist and especially coming from a physician side, that's very much outcome driven, right? We want to do well by patients and uh, we change many different variables of the treatment at the same time, looking for a positive outcome. Uh, that would be a very bad approach to science. And so there's an inherent tension uh, in how we practice um, medicine and how we practice science. And I can certainly say for myself that it uh, took uh, a few years to understand and appreciate that. And to take a different approach to my science than I do to my patients. 
Yeah, I, I one of the things you highlight in that in that statement is that you know you come through clinical training and you know a lot of patient care, but you don't know much research. <laughs> it's not part of your training, and there's so many nuances to addressing a research question that's completely different from how you'd care for patients. And I think I think that that's lost in our understanding as clinicians. And we there was a sense that. If we take care of patients, we must know how to do the research. I wonder if you can speak to that gap and how do physicians fill that gap? Yeah, I think I, we, I've learned a lot from uh, the scientists I interact with and from having been in science for a while. And I think a, a colleague I found has a particularly nice way of asking questions that captures uh, some of what... Um, I want to speak to here. Um, she will typically um, pose a question with, well, doctor, isn't there a different way of interpreting your results and make a suggestion to ask a question? I think uh, that's sort of, that's inherent in science. It's how we do science, right? Look for alternative explanations. And that isn't always what we do in the patient arena, but I think it would benefit us to do more of that. Isn't there a different way of looking at this situation? And I think that uh, one experience that helped me with that is uh, having worked at different institutions, just the diversity um, of experience that can really uh, shape your outlook. Uh, and I think that can translate into how you interact with patients. Um, and it certainly has helped the science. I love it. So in growing in the science, in learning to ask better questions, in challenging your assumptions, you actually become a better clinician as well. Oh, I strongly think so. Yeah, I believe that. I love it. Now, you've been in the game a long time. What has kept you in the game? Yeah. The thrill of discovery on the science side. It's like climbing a mountain and being the first to see the other side of what's there when you reach the peak. And it's not always a Mount Everest. And sometimes they're just little molehills, but the thrill never goes away. On the patient side, well, it's the patients. My first internship was with a solo pediatrician. And I think that's shaped how I look at healthcare and pediatrics in many ways. I just love being in the room with the kids and with the parents. And then not to underestimate the fact that being around young people who ask questions and who want to do their own thing is just as exciting. Those three things, really. That's really awesome. I, I'm excited just listening to you talking about that. It's like, wow, this is really cool. Now, I will tell you, in an age where there's so much physician burnout, and people are quitting. How does being a research scientist kind of change your experience relative to kind of the global experience? Yeah, I mean, I've only done one thing, so I can't really speak to what it looks like when uh, one is a full-time uh, physician or a full-time scientist. But I can say that balancing the two is part of the answer here. Right? I go to the clinic on my 
ambulatory clinic days and it just is invigorating to be with the patients and by the same token some of the noise that we deal with in patient care falls away when i come back to the lab and think about experiments when i design those experiments i write the plans so i think it's yeah it's the ability to go from one to the other and have them reinforce each other i like that the reinforcing of each other and it's true i mean it's we we came to this i mean for those of us who started as clinicians we came because of patients and mm -hmm. the work we do is our goal is to advance patient care yeah now you it's almost like you make it sound so easy but i bet there have been challenges along the way what are some of the greatest challenges you faced along the way rejection right and i i mean i don't i mean that to be in a personal way but the our clinical training you know there's plenty of ways by in which we are taught that I'm terribly conducive, that maybe I reject. Certainly, science is that way, right? So there is a strong inclination for scientists to criticize, to look for alternative explanations. But I think that the that the answer here is you have to be comfortable with the process. So it's not the immediate outcome, right? My first grant, probably my first few grants were rejected, not funded, but it's a process. And so it's not about the immediate success. It's about being persistent and it just makes the joy that greater. And I think that's, is a, that can be a challenge because the clinic, you know, you go into the, into the exam room and it's a great experience invariably the the patients their kids they're positive so i think that's a positive experience uh, when things go well and then you know the parents are grateful it's a wonderful situation it's like a candy jar why wouldn't you go back right and i think it's important to understand that uh, science is not like that and of course Clinical care isn't all like that, but I think to be comfortable with the fact that it's not all immediate gratification and that it's really you're in it for the long game and takes a little while to understand that there's beauty in that. Now, rejection really is, is, is a pretty prominent feature of science and, and the whole scientific enterprise. Now that you've been doing it a long time and you've probably had a lot of rejections, does it get easier? How do you handle rejection today compared to when you first started? Yeah, oh, it does definitely get easier. Some of it is built into the process. So initially you have, you know, one project, a few experiments, someone doesn't like them, you don't get funded. Ultimately, when you grow into your career, you have different projects, many trainees, different types of grants. And so you balance one with the other success here, maybe lack of success and a bit of rejection on the other side. So I, I think that's a big part of it. But the other part is that I have learned an incredible amount of ultimately actually science from my 
reviewers of papers and grants, right? Some of the projects in my lab have been investigating the biology of vesicles in the hematopoietic context, extracellular vesicles, and what their cargo protein, microRNA, what role they play in regulating hematopoiesis. That first came to us because the reviewer asked us about an observation that was sort of a sideshow in an early paper and said, have you ever considered this? And so that led to now well over a decade of research funding papers. And so I think what I've come to understand is that the criticism, even the harsh criticism can sometimes hold incredible value. You just have to go back and be willing to digest it. Wow. I love those insights. It's, I mean, it's true. I mean, I think about my experience too. You're always annoyed at the reviewer. When you go back and you think about it, you realize that if you're willing to be open, there's some insight and gems that you can take and, and make into something. And, and that at the end, I feel like my, my manuscripts are definitely enhanced by the reviewers and mm -hmm. certainly grants as well. And so, but there's also in your, in your, in your talking, there's also a, an openness though, to feedback. And, and I wonder, I wonder how, how people can, can encourage that in their journey. Cause I think that the initial response is to be closed-minded, but how do you take that rejection and make it, make it a gift? You, you made it a gift. It's been a gift to your research mm -hmm. lab for the last 10 years. How do you do that? How do other people do that? Yeah. I just go back. So when I get, I guess they used to be called pink sheets from NIH grants, right? So I go back to my critiques and I read them, I reread them, I, you know, highlight them. So I think you really have to be willing to read carefully, to read between the lines uh, and to, to digest. I don't think it's a, no, it's a single read and an immediate realization. I think that the openness and the acceptance and the opportunity that comes with some of the critique isn't always immediately apparent. I am afraid I don't have a sort of a, a magic bullet or a, you know, a, a go-to strategy for what you're asking, but I think allowing the process to take hold and the critique just to percolate through your mind is one way that's worked for me. Sure. I also hear you talking about a resilience because you keep going back, right? You don't first read the, I mean, I, I think I'm also kind of hearing that, I mean, you're going back to resubmit or you're going back to re readdress the issues. Mm -hmm. And so because you keep going back to it, you have the opportunity each time you go back to take something different from the first time. Uh, and the, I guess the other aspect of that is, of course, interaction with peers, right? So uh, I'm a big believer in uh, working with, so in terms of, uh, in the case of NIH grants, working with the institutes, what is it they want? What are they, what are their critiques? How, what's their interpretation of the critiques you've received? So, and it's just one example. The theme here is talk to other people, see how they interpret what comes back and bounce ideas for rebuttal of others. 
And I think those interactions can be incredibly insightful. And sometimes the discussion with maybe where you get the insight where you least expect it. So, you know, there's whether I talk to the program officer or a medical student in the elevator, the insight is everywhere. You just have to look for it. Yeah, you need to mine it. I also hear you speaking to the collaboration. There's just collaboration happening on many levels. Collaboration happening in your lab, collaborations happening with other investigators, collaboration kind of with the reviewers too, because their insights now are part of your program. And you're also talking about with the institutes as well. What are they looking for? How are they interpreting the the reviews? And so it, it's almost this sense of, I mean, we talk about team science, but it really is kind of the greater team science. Yeah, and I, I think that the the sciences reach such a complexity that you really need to you need to consider the environment. I mean, not just the physical environment, but also the intellectual environment as part of your resource, a necessary resource. And I strongly encourage reaching out to others beyond your own institution. Um, because, you know, we all have a tendency to sit in our own little ivory tower and uh, other people's towers have different outlooks. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I, yes, I totally, totally resonate with that. There's just so much diverse perspectives when you step outside of the institution. That's a really And people, people love to be tapped for advice and guidance, right? I mean, I've had some of the strongest support and greatest insights uh, in my career from folks who I emailed out of the blue for with a specific question or who I approached during a meeting. These can be great interactions. That's really insightful. And thank you for sharing that. All right. So we are coming to the end of the episode. And I wanted to ask if there is a young junior faculty person really just starting out right now, distracted by so many things, and they don't feel like they can succeed. What advice do you have for them? Believe in yourself and persist. If, if you want it, it will happen. And don't be distracted by people like myself who present their career in sort of a linear fashion. It's not like that. Linearity only exists in hindsight and the back and forth, the curves in how things proceed for you, part of how careers are shaped. I like that. I like that. We look to our mentors, those who have gone ahead and we're like, their life is so good. And what we've missed are the challenges that, that they, and the challenges and the obstacles they've overcome to get there. And so we're in the Earlier on, you're in that phase of overcoming obstacles, so sometimes it can feel insurmountable, but that is mm. that is the path. That is the journey everybody is on. I love it. I love yep. it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your insights. I wonder if you have any closing statements, something that we haven't touched on that you feel like it's important to share with our audience. It's all doable. Put your mind to it. Uh, and uh, again, I think that nothing's with beyond reach. And I think don't be, don't be intimidated when people tell you that 
your you have an MD behind your uh, name and you're not made to be a scientist. It's not like that. I love it. So much positivity, so much encouragement, so much inspiration. Thank you so much, Peter, for just your insights and, and just for being on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to us. I think this is great. I really enjoyed my time. Thank you. All right, everybody. You've heard Dr. Peter Curry. This is doable. You can do it. Don't, don't be discouraged. This is a hard journey, but you can do it. If there is somebody else who needs to hear this episode, it's been really insightful. Please share it with them. If you're a mentor, a mentee needs to hear this. If you're a mentee, you have a network that you can share it with as well. And I invite you to do that. All right. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking with you again on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way 